of Matthias, the son of Simine, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanon, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Maleah, the son of Minnah, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arpaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us through the ages that we might have it this morning. It's been read in a language that we are familiar with, and we come to you now, and we ask that you would grant to us more than physical, natural hearing and understanding. God, we pray that by the ministry of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, that you would grant to us spiritual understanding. You would open our eyes to behold wondrous things, that you would teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake. Father, I pray for your people. I pray that they would be encouraged by your word this morning. I pray, oh God, that you would help me, your servant. Lord, keep me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. God, you are our rock and our redeemer. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a story told that in the 17th century, that's the 1600s, Oliver Cromwell, who at the time had the title of Lord Protector of England, So Lord Oliver Cromwell had sentenced a soldier to death by firing squad for crimes that he had committed. The execution was scheduled to take place at the ringing of the evening curfew bell. However, that bell never sounded. What happened? Well, apparently, that soldier's fiance had climbed into the belfry and she had clung with all her might to the great clapper of the bell to prevent it from making noise as it struck. Picture that in your head, (laughs) grabbing onto a big tower bell clapper. And every time it swung, it'd be your hands that hit the side of the bell. When it was discovered what had happened and the young woman was summoned by Lord Cromwell to account for her actions, she wept. She couldn't say a word. She wept as she showed him her bruised and bloodied hands. 
It is said that Lord Cromwell was so touched by her sacrifice that he resolutely declared, your lover shall live because of your sacrifice. The curfew bell will not ring tonight at all. Awe. I expected an awe. We all love a good substitution story. We love stories like this. A story where someone stands in the place of another, where someone gives sacrificially of themselves for the benefit of another. Such sacrifice is what we call the epitome of love. Love that's described in John 15, 13 in this way. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And do you know who said that? I know you do. Jesus said that. In fact, he says in the very next verse, John 15, 14, he says, you are my friends. You are my friends. You see, he's coming near the end of his life. These words that he gave are a reminder that as he prepares to go to the cross, he's going there for his friends, for all those who will believe in him by faith. He's going to the cross to die for them, to lay his very own life down as a substitute for his friends. We all love a good substitution story. Today's passage, the one that I just read, reminds us that the substitution story of Jesus doesn't begin at the cross. Though we could say that the story was written in God's eternal decree before the world was ever created, it finds its earliest words here. It finds its earliest words here in the waters of the Jordan River where John, the baptizer, John is performing his baptism. Remember how his baptism was described back in verse three of chapter three, you can look there. It's a a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It is here where the eternal son of God, the second person of the divine Trinity will stand in the place of sinners. It is here in these waters where Jesus formally begins his ministry as the substitutionary sacrifice for his friends. This morning's passage breaks down naturally into three sections. Naturally, I didn't come up with three. It breaks down into three. The first of which is found in verse 21. One. If you're taking notes, this section will be our first of three points this morning. We'll title it Jesus's Baptism. Jesus's Baptism. Luke presents Jesus's baptism in his usual style, very matter of fact. He presents it very matter of fact. He says this, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, that's how he gives the account. So what I want to do is to help us get a fuller picture of what's happening here. I want us to turn to Matthew and John's account of this baptism. Let's first turn together to Matthew chapter 3. So you can turn there with me. I invite you to, but if you just want to listen, you can. 
I do like the sound of turning pages. I can hear your fingers move across your devices as well. I'll pretend I will. It's okay. It's okay to do that. Let's read Matthew's account. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And let's turn over to John chapter one. Begin in verse 29. John chapter one, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And then he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Because John's baptism is one of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, it's right that we would ask a a pretty basic question, right? If it's a baptism for repentance and forgiveness of sins, why is Jesus being baptized? Why is Jesus being baptized? After all, Jesus is the sinless son of God. For what sin must he need repentance? For what sin must he be in need of forgiveness? Of course, we all know the answer, right? None, none. However, By reading Matthew and John's accounts, we find clear, what I think are clear and irrefutable answers to the question, why Jesus was baptized. The first answer was found in Matthew 3.15, which we just read. Remember, John first objects to baptizing him, saying, no, 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 wait a minute, I need to be baptized by you. You remember what Jesus said to him? Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. You see, Jesus says that his baptism by John would fulfill all righteousness. But what does he mean by this? What does that even mean? Well, when we think of the ministry of Jesus, where do we tend to focus, right? We may focus on all of his miracles, but typically we focus there to the end, don't we? We focus primarily on his death and upon his resurrection. And we rejoice in that, right? Obviously, we rejoice in that. We rejoice in his obedience that led him there to the cross and how he sacrificed himself in our place. But we should also not forget to focus on his obedience throughout his life. Remember, Jesus came born of a woman 
born under the law, as Paul says in Galatians, to what? To fulfill the law, to meet the righteous requirements of the law's demands, to keep the law perfectly. In theology, we call this the active obedience of Christ. That is his keeping the law perfectly throughout his life. We call it active obedience. And we juxtapose that against what we call his passive obedience. It doesn't mean he just let everything happen to him, but he still gave his life willingly, but he was crucified there on the cross and he bore the wrath of God against sin there on the cross as he became sin for us. We call that the passive obedience. So if you like splitting hairs with theologians, we'll divide the two things into his active obedience and his passive obedience. His active obedience is him doing what he tells John in Matthew 3.15, fulfilling all righteousness. In other words, Jesus is identifying with sinners in their need for forgiveness. He doesn't need it, but he's identifying with his people, with Israel, with us also in our need for forgiveness. He's actually doing what was prophesied about him back in Isaiah 53.12. Isaiah mentions that, he would be numbered among the transgressors. Essentially, he would be lined up and counted among the sinners. That's what he's doing. After all the people had been baptized, there was Jesus. Numbered, counted to be baptized. As well, entering the waters of baptism, we can call it an act of solidarity. The choice made here at his baptism was the choice that ultimately led him to the cross. It was his active choice to be reckoned as a sinner so that sinners could be saved, to identify with the people of God and stand in their place to, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, to become sin for them so that they could become the righteousness of God so that they could become his righteousness. They could receive, we could receive his righteousness. You see, in both the life and the death of Jesus, in both his active and passive obedience, he fulfills all righteousness. He both keeps and fulfills the law. And he also subjects himself to the law's punishment. And he does this in our place. He does it for us. Many of you have heard of J. Gresham Machen. Shortly before his death in January 1st, 1937, he dictated a final telegram. Yeah, people still sent telegrams back then. He dictated one to his friend and dear colleague, John Murray. The words of the telegram were short and I'd call him sweet. This is what he said. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. No hope without it. John Murray wasn't puzzled by this, a theologian himself. He caught what he was saying, but he didn't really speak of it until much later. And he would explain how that message, the last message he heard from his dear friend, both comforted him and inspired him. It caused him to reflect 
on the truth that without Jesus's life of perfect righteousness and perfect obedience to the law, Jesus' death on the cross would have only transported us back to the garden. It would have only transported us back to a state of the possibility of righteousness. It would have transported us back to the place where Adam stood beneath the law, what we call the covenant of works, bound by a choice to remain in that state if only he were obedient. You see, if it was just the slate being wiped clean, the wrath being wiped clean, but no righteousness given to us, we would have been right back to that original state. Once again, under a law. But because Jesus took upon himself both the penalty of the law and the requirement of the law, he stands in our place with respect to both. To both. He fulfilled both for us. He fulfilled the law and he fulfilled the penalty that we deserve. So in him, we find ourselves, maybe not now, but secured by the spirit in future, we can find ourselves in a better place than Adam's garden. For we will one day be with Christ in the true garden, the true paradise of heaven to the place where there will be, get this, no more possibility of sin. I can't even fathom that because I'm a sinner. Can you? Can you imagine being in a place where you will not have any temptation to sin? You will not be under any law because you will be set free with the perfect righteousness of Christ. Can you imagine that? That's where you're going. To a place where we really fully realize his righteousness becoming ours. Do you now see Jesus entered the waters of John's baptism to fulfill all righteousness. In those waters of the Jordan River, Jesus stands in our place, in a place of perfect obedience for us. The second answer to the question, why was Jesus baptized, is found over in John 3, 31. There we see that John says that Jesus is baptized so that, quote, he might be revealed to Israel, so that he might be uncovered, our eyes opened to Israel. Well, helpfully, that answer also forms our second point from our text today. The second section of Luke 3 we are looking at, and it is this, we'll call it Jesus's affirmation. Jesus' affirmation, which you see there in verse 22. We've seen Jesus' baptism. Now we look to Jesus' affirmation. When Jesus is baptized by John, Luke tells us that the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, quote, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. It is here. Then where Jesus is revealed, Jesus is revealed to Israel as the Messiah. He's revealed as the eternal son of God who has become man to save his people from their sin. This is not a private experience. This is a public event. This is a public proclamation. And what happens is rather astounding. 
It's rather astounding. Here we have a true theophany. You may remember from our time in the book of Exodus, a theophany is an appearance of God, a visible appearance of the invisible God. Well, here we see a visible appearance of God's invisible spirit. Luke says, and the other writers say that in the form of a dove, the Holy Spirit descends and rests upon Jesus. What does that mean? It means that Jesus' ministry will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not as if though Jesus hasn't already been filled with the Spirit. We've seen in Luke already that he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. We've seen that he was filled with the Spirit's wisdom. But here at his baptism, the Spirit is making a public declaration that he's with Jesus for ministry. Something that will be absolutely clear in the chapters to come. From Jesus' temptation, where he's led there into the desert by the Spirit, all the way to his triumphant resurrection, Jesus will minister in and with the power of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. It is also here at Jesus' baptism where it becomes fully Trinitarian, right? We see the Son, we see the Spirit, and then the voice of the Father making his declaration this declaration of affection, declaration of approval for his son. Not as the heretics declared a declaration of adoption. No, Jesus had always been eternal son of God, both fully human and fully divine. No, this is affirmation, affection, approval. He says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is what the father loves to declare. He loves to declare that Jesus is the son, his son, the son that he loves. Well, this expression, as it is put here, uh, it rings with echoes from the Old Testament. Perhaps you picked up on them already. Uh, What God the father says here sounds familiar to the way that God had spoke about Isaac when he said Abraham's only son, his beloved son there in Genesis 22. It also echoes God's declaration to Israel's king and what was ultimately meant to be said for Israel's Messiah in Psalm 2-7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Then there's Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 42, 1, it reads this way, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. These deep biblical connections are, are meant for us to pick up on a suggestion. They, they speak to Jesus' sovereignty. They speak to Jesus' servanthood. He is the sovereign king of kings, as Psalm 2 speaks. He is the suffering servant of which Isaiah 42 speaks. These passages identify him as God's king, God's royal son. They identify him as God's servant who comes bringing salvation to his people. The father loves his son. And I'll never be able to wrap my mind around this fully, but he has eternally loved his son. Always father, always son, always full of love for one another. I can't grasp eternity. I can't. The father loves his son and he's pleased 
with his son's sacrificial obedience to fulfill his eternal will and his eternal plan for his people. Jesus knows to where he's going. God the Father certainly knows to where he's going. And he sends him off with blessing. So the Father is delighted to bless him and to proclaim, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Every one of us, every single one of us in here, no matter our age, we long to hear a father's voice say those words. I love you. I'm proud of you. While some of us have heard these words, we've heard them from our earthly fathers. Some of us miss hearing them from our earthly fathers. I realize that some of us have never heard them at all. But I want you to take heart, no matter where you fit in that spectrum. If you believe in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then God is just as pleased with you. The Father's words of affirmation here, his expressions of affection and approval are for his son and therefore everyone who has faith in his son. Jesus came to bring us into that love, into the Father's love. You see, uh, the things that we do on our own in our sin are not pleasing to God. If we had to stand before God the Father on our own merits, what would happen? We wouldn't stand, would we? We would never gain his approval. We would never deserve his affection. But we don't. Christians, hear this. We do not stand before God on our own merit. As soon as we trust in Jesus for our salvation, we stand before the Father on the merit of his Son. We stand before him with the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. That's hard to wrap our minds around, isn't it? We stand before God with the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Now God the Father looks upon us with the same affection and approval that he has for his son. So God the Father looks at you, his child, and says, I love you. With you, I am well pleased. I love you. He says to you, I love you. With you, I am well pleased. No matter what has or hasn't been said to you before, rest in this truth. Jesus' affirmation, if you're in him, is also your affirmation as well. And that brings us to our third and final point this morning, which is also the third natural section in our passage. It's verses 23 through 38, Jesus' genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus. Most of us are pretty familiar with Matthew's genealogy that opens his gospel account. And right away, uh, you probably notice that there's differences between this one and his. Not only are the names different, but the scope is different too. Matthew, if you remember, begins with Abraham and then traces the lineage forward through the royal line of David all the way to Jesus himself. Luke, on the other hand, because Luke does things differently, Luke, on the other hand, works in reverse order. Luke begins with Jesus and then works backward, 
Still through David and Abraham, maybe in the midst of all those names you caught that. But he also goes further, doesn't he? He's like one-upping his buddy, right? I'm going to go one, one further. I'm going to go all the way back to Adam. And you may have noticed that the names are different. We don't have time to go into all that this morning, but you'll notice the names are different. I like what Dale Ralph Davis says, don't use this as an opportunity to be stupid. <laughs> I think he can say that and get away with it. It doesn't necessarily mean that Luke and Matthew disagree, but rather we find that while Matthew traces the genealogy through Joseph, Luke does so through Mary. Luke does so through Mary, but why? Why does he do it differently? Why does he trace Jesus's line through Mary? I'm glad you asked. To put it simply, Luke is making a different point than Matthew. Luke, whose primary audience is Gentiles, uh, Luke is focused on presenting the absolute humanity of the divine son of God who came to be the savior of all types of people, not just the Jews. Luke is also determined, as we've already seen, and as we'll see again next week, he's determined to present Jesus as the true and better Adam. He's passionate to present Jesus as the true Adam and the better Adam. We can be sure of this when we consider how Luke describes Adam in verse 38. Your ears may have ended. (laughs) You had no more to listen to when I got to the end because of all the names, but don't miss this. He calls Adam what? The son of God. Well, in one sense, Adam is a son of God, right? Adam had no earthly parents. He wasn't born by what we call natural generation. He was specially created by God. And as is made clear in the whole teaching of the New Testament, especially Romans 5, Adam in the garden represented all mankind. Adam was the federal head of all mankind. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that Adam, when he fell into sin, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, all of mankind fell with them. When he fell, so did we. That's why the Bible speaks of this, that when we are born, every human who is born from Adam and Eve, every human that is born of natural generation, from Cain all the way to me, all of us are born in sin. We're born in Adam. But Jesus, on the other hand, is not a son of God, as Adam was. He is the son of God, capital S. Also not born of natural generation, but different in that he is the eternal son. He is God himself. He has no sin in him, nor is he even able to sin. And he is born of Mary. He's conceived by the spirit, but truly born of Mary, born to represent his people as well. He's also the head of his people to represent those who were given to him by the father. He's the head of those. And he comes to fulfill all righteousness for these and bring them in 
to eternal life. So Luke then, by presenting Jesus through Mary's line, is holding up Jesus as the great contrast to Adam, as the one who came to do what Adam was unable to do, to do what any of us are unable to do, to live a righteous life before God, to be the true and better representative of a true and better humanity. This will become very clear when we get to 4-1 next week. For where does Jesus go? Into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. I don't want to have a spoiler here, but he passes the test. And who didn't? Adam. Sorry if I spoiled it for you. This is important. As we've said in weeks past, It's vital that we hold up both Jesus' full humanity and Jesus' full deity. I know it's mysterious, but it's true. Because he is fully human, he can indeed be our true savior. The author of the book of Hebrews says it well in 2.17. He says, quote, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Remember, Luke says, I'm writing this gospel so that you can be certain, you can know for sure. That's why we call Luke the gospel of knowing for sure. Luke wants us to be certain that Jesus was indeed made man. And he wants us to be even more certain that he is indeed the true and better Adam. And this genealogy is important to establish that. And I believe that's why he puts it here. He puts it here right before chapter four. He puts it here as Jesus begins his ministry. To help you see, I'll close with this, why genealogies can be important to show the truths of the gospel. We'll think about Matthews again for a moment. Uh, there's a Wycliffe Bible translator that when he first uh, started translating the Bible in Papua New Guinea, Uh, he began, as most Wycliffe translators do, by doing the Gospel of Matthew. And it's their practice that they'll go into a village and start living amongst the people and get some of the people there to help them learn the language and translate the Bible into the language. And that's a way to share the truths of the Bible with them. But when the work started, this guy decided to skip chapter one of Matthew. He decided to skip chapter one and begin with chapter two. You know why? because he didn't want to bog them down with all the begats. He didn't want to bog them down with it. He wanted to get right to the heart of it. Well, when the day came that all the other chapters were done, the people still hadn't believed in Jesus, but there's still work to be done. So he calls his translators together who are helping him, and he said, let's do chapter one together. So they spent a lot of time, and he details how they spent this time trying to translate the word begat, And when they finally decided on the word that should be used, they proceeded. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat, and so on and so forth. By the time they had completed only six of these, the missionaries sensed that something was different about his helpers. They began to get really excited. And they said, do you mean that these were real men? Yes, he answered. So, so you're saying they were real men. You know, this is what we do. 
we keep track of our generations as well. We've got generations upon generations. I could tell you my father's father and his father and his father and his father and his father and so on and so forth. So you're telling me these are real people? The missionary's like, yeah, of course. That's what I've been telling you all along. We didn't realize that. They said, we thought these were just the stories of white men who came to us. You mean to tell us this stuff really happened? And so they finished that chapter. They reviewed their work and they told him, we now believe. We now believe. In fact, that very night, they gathered the whole village together and they said, listen to this. And the translated started and they read from Matthew 1 all the way through to the end. And since that day, the gospel has exploded in that region and many have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Genealogies are important. Let us not forget that Jesus was truly born of Mary. Jesus is the son of God and the son of man. He is the true and better Adam. He walked this earth as a man. He identified with us both in the waters of John's baptism and at the cross of Calvary, that Jesus fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law for us. And he also offered himself as a penalty to, to get death that we deserve. He did both those things. Why? So that we might hear God's words of affection so that we might hear God's words of assurance and so that we might share an eternal life with him forever and ever. We all love a great substitution story. And I have to tell you, that's actually the best one ever told. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you grab your bulletins?